Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all the franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and we are over the threshold. We have crossed the midpoint of our latest franchise coverage, and we are here today to talk one of the highlights, I think, of Saw. We are here to talk about 2009's Saw 6. As always, I am not alone, and I could not do the show alone. It would sound really awkward. I would just be asking myself questions and then pausing and waiting a long time for answers. I have We have a pretty huge crew again. Like This Saw series has proved very popular for friends and guests and co-hosts. And up with us, our resident Saw expert. We have, once again, Ariel Powershop. Ariel, how are we? I'm doing great. Super stoked to be here. And now I want, like, maybe a Patreon special of you just talking to yourself on an episode. I think we all deserve that. Okay. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Did the in-laws show up to build traps yet? No, they they haven't yet. So I remain, I remain trapless. If they don't show up soon, are they going to wind up in a tape? <laughs> Absolutely like, well, not. Father-in-law be pressing a little tape. They, they listen you to promised my... to come and build traps and then never showed. Make a choice. No, and also if they're listening right now, I would never do that to you. Because sometimes my are... family listens to my podcasts. <laughs> do they? Sometimes, yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's lovely. My mom doesn't know what a podcast is. Well. I think I do have some relatives that do listen that I don't get to see very often, but they're very nice. Um, and I know some students listen, so I should probably be more careful about what I say. But, you know, nah. what, are, what are you going to do? Joining us for the first time in a long time. I think this is your is this your first episode on for this franchise? Yes. Yes, it is. Excellent. Yep. <laughs> We are joined who actually just recorded Jump the Gun on Us, and he recently on his own show, uh, Disenfranchise, did an episode on Spiral, which we'll be covering later this month. Mr. Chewy Walrus himself, Stephen Foxworthy. Look, we got to get, you know, for the clicks, we got to strike while the iron's hot. So, and, and, I, and to be fair, I did not poach anybody for that because I didn't want to do that to you. Uh, I, oh, I don't I'll care. just refrain from being it's... on the spiral episode. If you want to hear my thoughts, you can go listen to the disenfranchised episode, <laughs> particularly if you want to hear my co-host Brett Wright just lore dump for a good hour and a mm -hmm. half, which I mean, I do want that. It is look lore and continuity are two things my buddy Brett really loves. And so if you want to hear him do that, check that out. It's it's a good listen and a very fun. But yeah, I'm excited to be here talking about my second favorite entry in this franchise. Saw six. Mm -hmm. Ari has done 13 Saw episodes in the past month alone for other podcasts. Like, <laughs> So we have zero problem with anybody going out there and spreading the word. Like we do not have uh, – there is there is not a non-compete clause Fair. in anyone. I just don't want to make anyone have to repeat themselves, you know? Oh, like, that's all I do. Because I know some people are like, well, <laughs> so I want to save the good stuff for my show. And I'm like, well, if, if they're going to mm -hmm. save the good stuff, I'll let them save the good stuff for Pod and Pendulum. Because okay. you know what? Yeah. I, and I praised this show on Disenfranchised, too, because this, yeah. I'll say it right now. Mike and Ari, I told you guys this earlier when we recorded our thoughts on Saw 10 for the, for the patrons. But 
the the coverage uh, your guys's coverage of the saw franchise made me watch the saw franchise a, a franchise wow. i had never watched before so i was having so, so much fun listening that. to you guys talk about it. i'm like well i want to have fun well then i should probably watch this franchise and mm-hmm. so i did and here i am i'm so happy thank you and I'm so happy you said that. And I also love it for you that you feel you have the good stuff. So I love that for you <laughs> in that confidence. Um, we, well, we love you, Stephen. Uh, also joining us once again to rep his main man. He is the Hoffman <laughs> Stan among us from the Spectre Cinema Club, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we? Hello, hello. I am fantastic, of course. Uh, I did uh, switch up what appearances I was going to be making to uh, stick to my uh, Hoffman standage. Um, yeah, so so I'm stoked for this one. Stoked uh, for, for more Hoff. Uh, Hoff, 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 it all day. Really, like I was surprised when you weren't on this one because I'm like, this is the Hoffiest of Hoffman <laughs> movies. Like this is really his movie. So I am very happy you're here. For that, I do have to ask, and this is pretty insider. Uh, listener and guest Cat Hughes posted that picture for you of her with Costas Mandalore, <laughs> looking like he had just come back from beating up street urchins in the London street. How hot is that dude with the beard Holy and the scally shit. cap? Though? He can come and get it. I'll tell you yeah. that for free. I, I seriously, I was like, I was like, damn, why oh didn't we get God. bearded Hoffman for for any of these entries? Because yeah, he he looks good oh, with yeah. the beard, makes the lips pop. All of the sudden, understood how he made people's like sexiest man list in the early '90s. I'm like, that makes sense now. Like the beard, but he definitely looked like he just kicked the shit out of a bunch of orphans, <laughs> and I am there for yeah, it. Yeah, he kind of so, does. So <laughs> joining. I said, even when he's exactly. calm, he's intense. Like, is exactly. so funny. <laughs> Joining us again, she joined us for our Saw 3 episode. Uh, she is a longtime listener and patron, and we loved having her on so much that we wanted her back again. Miss Lucy Landau. Lucy, how are we? Okay, yeah, thank you. I am very good, and I'm very excited uh, to be here for Saw 6. I was kind of wondering whether after Saw 3, if I'd be hearing like a thing from what thing, hey, we've got like too many people on the next one, so we've had to bump someone, sorry, but yeah, I'm very excited, very honoured to be back to talk about this, one of my favourite, well, almost my most favourite horror franchise and my comfort horror franchise. So thank you so much, guys. Let's talk about our initial thoughts on Saw 6, and Lucy, as our guest, uh, why don't you kick things off by letting us know like when the first time you watched Saw 6 and your initial thoughts way back in 2009 uh, when this hit theaters. Okay, um, um, like I said before, but I'll just say again for anyone who didn't hear, um, Saw, like, the Saw franchise was a very special part of my horror movie sort of just like experience just because the fact that they one came out every year it was an exciting time you could like watch you could watch them and like speculate about what was going to happen but um at the same time that I loyally love this franchise and I've stuck with it through thick and thin this was the one where I think I did begin to sort of recognize the fact that they are consciously following a formula as they make these and some of them maybe aren't that great. I did still like Saw 6, but, yeah, that was just sort of when I began to understand that, oh, maybe, like, these aren't the greatest movies, but that's okay because I still love them and I will still follow them very loyally. But 
yeah. I think your experience mirrors that of a lot of people, mm-hmm. as we'll talk about. Maybe, like, by the one before this, I think that's when people kind of zone out a little bit. Like, after maybe five was a bit of a disappointment. And by six, it's like, it's October. I guess it's time for Saw. <laughs> Um, if it's October, did you feel? It must be so. <laughs> musket, musket. <laughs> yes, guys, come on. Did did you feel that the series was like kind of veering towards parody a little bit by this time with some of what? Not parody, um, I, but I was aware that by this point I was one of the few members of my friendship group who still strongly advocated for saw. Let's put it that okay. way. <laughs> They were just like, give it up. Yeah. You're oh, okay, well, got it. They're like, we're not. Yeah. You were starting well, to get outvoted. It started happening by this <laughs> point as right. well. So yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely talk about that. Uh, the and new we have that in our notes. And in, that's in, uh, something I could def. We'll definitely go down a little bit of that rabbit hole. But before we do that, Devon, what was this for yeah. you? What was your first time with this? Yeah, no, so this is funny because kind of how I mentioned last episode, uh, the very first time I did my Saw marathon, I did it on one go. I was like, I'm doing doing this straight through. So by the time I got to five and six were some of my sleepier watches, Um, especially six, just because I couldn't really remember anything just because I was sleepy. So like, I guess my brain told me, I was like, oh, if you can't remember it, it must not have been that good. And then so that was like kind of my opinion for the longest and then whenever like spiral came out i only rewatched a few movies before it and i didn't rewatch six so this was this past week was my like only second time watching this one and i was like blown away i was like oh my god i was like this is this movie rips i was like this is way better than i remember way more john than i remember uh it shot up my rankings and um and i i do have to shout out uh trace thurman um uh horror queers because uh we've always had like a back and forth on this i would kind of rib them but like you know, everyone recently has been coming out of the woods saying that six is their favorite and one of the better ones. But like three years ago, people weren't saying that except mm-hmm. for Trace. Trace was leading the pack. He was the one out there uh, trying to tell people like, hey, if you got to the point in the franchise, like, you know, with Lucy, like if you were starting to get stale on the franchise at this point, keep going. Because like, you know, it, yeah. it still has a little bit. It still has more steam. Uh, it has more gas left in the tank. So. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm I, so it's been interesting now seeing it kind of emerge as a fan favorite, especially since uh, Gruder, you know, just directed uh, 10. Um, and so I feel like that kind of also has part to do with it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, this one's great. I mean, we got we got great Hoffman stuff, really great traps. And like we'll we'll get into it later. But like as we like kept saying that, like, oh, this is going to be the emotional one. No, this is going to be the emotional one. I actually think this one, aside from three, is like kind of the most harrowing entry uh, as far as like you know, watching people kind of suffer through this situation, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm big yeah. into this one. Stephen, how about yourself? Like, this is your first time yeah. joining us for any of the saws, and like you said, like it's kind of your first time going through the series. Mm-hmm. So before we get to your initial thoughts on six, like, what were your feelings like leading up to this entry? Did it feel like, oh God, I gotta press play again <laughs> on another one of these, or were you feeling some excitement? I um so it it took me a long time you know listeners know I'm a, I'm a horror baby compared to the rest of y'all I didn't grow up with this I came to this all this very late and I I'm not a gore guy so I really hesitated on getting into the Saw franchise my buddy Brett Wright co-host of the Disenfranchised podcast was 
like you can check out the first two. So I watched those a couple years ago and I was like, the first one's fine. The second one, not. Um, and I still stand by that. Um, but then again, based on what you guys were doing, I, I kept going. I was not excited for this one because unlike Devon, I don't like Hoffman. Uh, I think he is, uh, let me just check my notes here. The literal worst. Um, <laughs> Costas Mandalore kind of looks Devon like Devon has bargain. turned away from the right. camera. He has, he has shunned that. me. I am no longer welcome in his presence. I gotta get. I gotta give him his. <laughs> I gotta give him his time. I, I, I won't. I won't stop the slander. Just he looks yet. like bargain basement Sylvester Stallone. Um. Um. But no, I. I just. I. But I don't. I also. I just don't like the character. Like, and I feel. Yeah, he's an absolute dickhead. Yeah. He is. Like, there's nothing really redeemable about him. And sure, that might be the point, but it doesn't mean <laughs> I enjoy it, you know? Like, I don't yeah, like fair. watching that. So I was kind of... What if he had a beard and a scally cap? I don't know. I don't know. Get, send me a picture. We'll see. He he could come okay. get it. That's what I'll say. I may not share your enthusiasm, but we'll, <laughs> I, I will reserve judgment. Um but so I wasn't really excited for this one. And then I, I started watching it and I had heard like six is the one, you know, with the medical stuff. I've been through some medical stuff over the course of the past year. So I was like, well, you know, and I was amazed at how much it resonated. Like I it it like it was like the franchise just took a step up and I'm like so close to the end. You're have you have you been saving the good stuff? Saw franchise. So um, nice like. And yeah, I was just like, this is, this is good. I, I enjoy this very much. So I was surprised by my enjoyment of this entry. And this currently sits at my number two in my overall Saw rankings. So, Ari, how about yourself? Were you one of those rare few that were uh, banging the drum of Saw 6 for years now? Like when, what were your first thoughts on this one? Well, for a few years, because, um, you know, I did my rewatch of the later sequels a few years ago, just cranking through the, the Blu-rays, and I didn't love five, as we talked about, but I wanted to keep going, and so I was like, okay, we'll see where six goes, and, like, the jump up to how good six is feels so much greater, even after five was kind of disappointing, so I was like, I rated it really highly, and I still do, I love this one. Um, I wanted to stand up and cheer at the end. I think it's very relatable for many, if not most, if not all, people who have had to go through medical insurance woes of trying to get your care paid for and trying to access care. It's a very relatable thing, and it pulls at the heartstrings, and it you know gives me some feelings. So, um, plus, uh, the traps are great. Like, uh, we get a lot of Jill, which I love. And we get, yeah, we'll get into more of it. But I, I really love this one. It's a general consensus, I think, here amongst the crew today in, in terms of how much we appreciate this one. It is one, and again, I just watched these all for the first time, uh, except for the first two in Jigsaw, in preparation for uh, us diving into the series. And I'll say when it first came out, I remember like really actively rooting against the movie. Like it had come out when Paranormal Activity did. And I remember like Paranormal Activity essentially like driving a stake through the heart of the franchise, like really kicking its ass and being like, yes, absolutely. I want more of these kind of movies. 
it's a really silly and immature thing to do. Like we should just want more movies made, um, not fewer movies. So I will say like pretty immature in my part. I knew enough about what happens in this movie and what the general reaction to it was that preparing for the show, I was really excited to watch it Uh, because I knew it was like one of the good ones. It was tackling the healthcare industry coming off of five, which I felt was a bit of a letdown. This one was all the stronger for uh, coming off a more disappointing entry. It's Jigsaw as a social justice warrior, which we'll definitely talk about here, like Occupy Jigsaw. Uh, It was definitely a thing. The traps are fantastic. You get, I think, a more judicious use, use of the flashbacks here. It's less disorienting. There are some strong performances all around. I would maybe change the ending slightly. I wish the main story ended here. Although it does have a great cliffhanger. Like, you know, I can if, it, if the series ended where it does, that would be a really ballsy move. Like that would have been an absolutely ballsy move. But um, I really enjoyed this one. It's very high up in my rankings. And I would say Gruter, who steps into the director's chair here, has definitely helmed the two best sequels of the whole series. Agreed. Yes. So... With that in mind, Aria, why don't you kick things off with a little bit of the background of this movie and how it came to be? So, as we said, it was directed by Kevin Grutert, or maybe Grutert. I am not sure, and I apologize to Mr. Kevin. Um, he had... Okay. He had edited previous films. You know, he's the one really responsible for saving the first movie and giving it enough time to be a feature film via his editing and then that became the style for a whole decade like the whole decade of 2000s horror owes a lot to him and his editing style and so this is his time to step into his directorial debut again it was written the story was written by Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan who had kind of come in with a plan to get through this story And Gruter said he found the process of transitioning from editor to director pretty easy due to his experiences in developing short films and his knowledge about the discussions between producers and filmmakers. Like, he's just kind of been in the film industry for a long Mm -hmm. time, had his hands in a lot of things. So he was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I feel like I I know enough to get started. Um, I think I had had read (laughs) elsewhere that he was offered the opportunity to direct part five but had to step away because I think of family illness. That sounds correct. And then he was given this, Mm -hmm. the chance to direct this one afterwards. I think that that sounds familiar to me. So he didn't edit six though. Um, A newcomer to the series, Andrew Kautz replaced him as editor for six. So he could just really focus on directing. And Saw Six is the last time David A. Armstrong served as the cinematographer for the series, and he had done that for a long time. So in Gruterte's words, he wanted to bring a lot of the same insane energy Darren Bousman brought to the series, but making the film feel not only like a horror film, but also a thriller, in addition to create the feeling of the audience being in a roller coaster ride which breaks down, it's slow and dark until something jumps out and the audience is back on the roller coaster. 
I gotta give him props for not just saying this is the emotional one of the franchise, which we've heard mm-hmm. from all the previous sequels. Um, so I literally I, laughed when I saw your notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, finally, we're not just saying that. Um, yeah, you know, he wants it to feel a little bit crazy, but also thrilling and a little yeah. bit surprising. And you know, we'll get into it when we discuss the movie. But I think that he achieves that. He said that the victims in the traps would be more one-on-one and that the traps would be very personal, which I do think ends up being true. During early planning stages for the script, it was suggested, I don't know by who, that Detective Hoffman should take on the mafia due to his vigilante MO, but that was quickly dismissed as feeling, quote, not saw enough and more like the Punisher. Yeah, thank God. I don't think we need like jigsaw meets the sopranos like i don't think we need that i mean he definitely looks like he has ties to the mafia yeah. like he looks like the mafia's go-to dirty cop uh so i mean it wouldn't have been too out of the realm but like yeah in in this franchise like what uh, yeah it would have would have been a little odd. it would have been weird it would have come out of nowhere especially as they're in the middle of telling this other story mm-hmm. so. yeah they would have had yeah. like Instead of a pound of flesh, it would have been like, you have to eat every cannoli on this <laughs> conveyor oh, belt. Or sign me up, please, and thank go. you, yes. Yeah, yeah. where can I do that trap? <laughs> That's the Homer Simpson uh, in hell donut. Donuts in yeah. hell, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good one. You can save this horse from having its head appear in your bed. If you... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, God, sorry, everyone. <laughs> I mean, that's how it would have to be, right? Right. It would be something like that, though. So Gruterit said in a Demon FM interview that Lionsgate told him a week before filming that Saw 6 would be post-converted into 3D. Gruterit was upset since he envisioned a 2D film, and thankfully those plans were later abandoned due to time constraints anyway. But, like, what a terrible idea. Not yeah. like not even shooting it to be in 3D, yeah. just post-converting it to 3D. I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine any soft film in 3D. Like, what an awful idea that would be. That would be so just... weird. That'd be such a yeah, hopefully we don't get that. James Cameron has a lot to answer for. So part of how this movie came together was through a show called Scream Queens. And Lucy, I would love to throw it to you to talk a little bit about this since you actually watched the show. I watched all of Screen Queens on the H1 as it happened because as just like a excited, giddy horror fan and reality TV show teen, this was right in my wheelhouse. But even as it was happening, I realised and as a as, as Stephen, you, you've watched the recap of it by... I have, I, I, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to, like, give this plug. What is the premise of the show? Okay, the premise of the show is that it's a reality TV show about 10 actresses who are competing for, quote-unquote, a starring role in the next Saw film. And it's um, it was hosted by Shawnee Smith and James Gunn. And basically every week they had to do a sort of an actress challenge and they had a um, acting coach who um, I didn't remember his name at the time. I just thought of him as the dickhead because he was just a horrible, toxic, unpleasant man that these actresses had to interact with. 
That was uh, stock standard reality show type, right. though. Yes, I mean, the, yes. the Simon yes. Cowell. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, okay, but yeah, e- even like as like you know, an, uh, as a teenager, just unquestionably consuming reality TV and like this kind of media. At the time, I even I, I recognise that this is gross, mm-hmm. and the kind of things that these actresses are going to have to do. And Stephen, as, as you watched the recap by the. Um, a YouTuber called In Praise of Shadows did a fantastic video just basically doing a solid retrospective of the entire show. But, yeah, okay, basically, but, yeah, okay, as we know, um, Tanidra, I'm sorry, I can't remember her surname, but who appears... Howard. A, yeah, Howard, who appears in, like, the first scene as in, in the Pound of Flesh um, saw trap. She... She won. She, she was the winner out of the ten actresses of the show. But basically, um, every basically every episode, they would have to do a quote unquote actress like acting challenge. But um, as I talked about in w- w- when I was allowed to like have my say in Saw Three, the challenges that they were given were sort of. Stephen, I'm sure you'll agree with this. Were sort of like sexist and insulting in a way that the Saw exploitative. Yes, yeah, yeah, in a way that the Saw franchise like was not sexist. Like one of the reasons why, like you know, as a woman and a woman of color, I always appreciated the Saw franchise is that like it's all, it was sort of very equal opportunity in the way it like you know treated the victims of the various Saw traps. But okay, I'm um, literally in the first episode of the Scream Queens thing um the um, actresses were required to quote unquote seduce the acting coach john who because is famous for its seduction scenes did the like the quote unquote director sort of challenges who like i just want like the record to show that at the time that the show happened james gunn was only known for like you know the slither slither and the super roma yeah exactly and Romeo okay, and, and Juliet, yeah. Yes, and, yeah, and exactly. the Scooby Doo movies, and he had written. Yeah, okay. I had seen the first Scooby Doo, which I think had come out at like the same time, but um, but yeah, and and Shawnee Smith hosted it, and I give her a little bit of leeway because I like Shawnee Smith, <laughs> and I know that like you know as an actress you do what you have to do, but yeah, literally, literally the first episode of Screen Queens, the actresses were given a challenge by John, the acting coach, who I just thought of at the time as the dickhead and I only remembered his name was John when I rewatched the show to prep for this podcast um he like he, he literally like passed a like basket of fruit out to all these 10 actresses and told each of them like you know seduce me with a piece of fruit that you pick out of this bowl and so the actresses like you know did that and then afterwards he had the fucking nerve to tell them i want you to be actresses not porn stars oh and if they resisted at all or expressed discomfort in any way they were like nagged and gaslit and forced and it was again just just within that that hour-long recap that in praise of shadows does it is grossly uncomfortable in every aspect like i cannot cannot fathom why this was on television yeah and like i say like teenage me who loved the saw franchise loved reality tvs tv shows like recognized this was gross and not okay 
and um and it was it was, it was a cliche reality tv show like yeah well mm-hmm. let's move on from but that yeah, unpleasantness yeah. So, sorry let's, sorry no right. no that's fascinating that <laughs> right. all that thank you for walking yeah. us through Valuable that because context. i was aware of the show but i had never really dug into it so thank you for that because that's important that was going on so other characters with bigger roles in the film a uh, little bit on hoffman and amanda the actual star well I don't know if Amanda's the actual star of this one, but you know. Um, so Costas Mandalore commented on his character Hoffman at this point and said, Hoffman is sort of torn between becoming a madman or becoming a guy that's more composed, coming from a pure place like Jigsaw. That's my character's dilemma. Does he go fucking crazy mm-hmm. or does he follow the rules of the boss? Which I think is kind of a fun thing to to hear. Oh yeah, I see. Like I, I feel that. Like I, I, like my like little jokey blurb on Letterbox for this one was that uh, that mm-hmm. like basically Jigsaw is like, hey Hoffman, you're getting a little too into this, so you need to rein it back. And it's like that's rich coming from you, John. But like that is kind of like what's happening. It's like he's either going, you know, at one point he was like, I was like, oh yeah, okay, like I think he really gets it, and then it's like, okay, hey, now you're doing way too much. Like chill out, man. So like I, I see that. This is the first time that Shawnee Smith filmed any new scenes for an entry since Saw 3. And that scene where she's in the car with Cecil and she's like shivering, it's because it was actually freezy and raining in Toronto and she was actually cold. And I'm like, poor Shawnee Smith, can she show up? I'm just like, can she get a break where like she's super sick in the first one, she's secretly pregnant in the second one. Like she's been through a lot for this franchise. By the third by the next one they're just throwing like rabid chihuahuas at her like in between takes probably i thought we weren't doing spoilers for freak in the shooting gun yeah don't spoiler apart before. from you so no but <laughs> right. um sorry she in, but she's in saw 10 <laughs> isn't she is she yes so saw six as we kind of alluded to earlier um this is the movie where the franchise starts to make less money so it wasn't screened in advance for critics, and there's kind of this perfect storm that leads to this movie making less money than the Saw movies were used to making. We talked about Saw 5 had poor reviews, and we mentioned briefly Saw 6 was up against the wide theatrical release of Paranormal Activity. If you look up Paranormal Activity on IMDb, it says 2007, but it didn't get a wide release until 2009, so it was up against Saw 6. So that's why there's that, you know, if you look it up, it's a little confusing, but that's why. So on Halloween weekend, um, Saw 6 moved down to number 6 on on the charts. Um, It opened in the United Kingdom in second place behind Up, the lovely animated movie. Another movie movie about an angry old man concerned about mortality. (laughs) And an apprentice. And an apprentice. (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) Up, stealth reboot of Saw by Pixar. Fucking um, love that movie. In Australia, it opened at fourth place, and it still made plenty mm. of money, right? Like Saw Six made plenty of money, but it less it was less money than they were used to, and that sort mm-hmm. of scared the, the filmmakers, and that'll yeah. impact the next film when we talk about it. So, Saw Six was shot on a budget of eleven million. It was filmed in Toronto released on October 23rd in 2009 and it ended up grossing over 69.8 million globally which was the lowest grossing saw film at the time um it placed number 3 in its first week on the DVD sales chart 
and um, the film grossed 13.4 million in home sales. So, you know, making less than it was used to making. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how that carries yeah. into the seventh film when we get to that. But I, it's an important part of Saw's story. Like five wasn't received super well. We've got the Scream Queen show going on. We've got paranormal activity. But Saw 6 on its own is a really great movie, as we all said earlier. So it'll get pretty interesting. That's a trend in franchises, though. Like mm-hmm. the Friday the 13th franchise, one of the lowest grossing is Jason 6, which is regarded by a lot of fans as one of the best in the franchise. But because it's it's always the box office for the current film is always a response to the one before. And so Absolutely. people didn't people went out in droves to see five because they liked four, but five under delivered. So they stopped going to the movies. They don't see six. And then the rest of the franchise suffers as a result, even though six is good. The word of mouth doesn't get out enough to lure people back into the theater. Oh, nine yes. is a it's a turning point in horror as well. It paranormal activity had one of the greatest marketing campaigns in the history of horror where you would have these commercials of just showing the audience reacting in theaters you would have those mm-hmm. that kind of yes. like stealth cam and on like it, it was it just looked like a great date movie right you would go yeah mm. um watching mm-hmm. watching like the first paranormal activity in the cinema was one of the best like cinema absolutely i've had in my absolutely. life absolutely yeah so you have this, this and also they had like the demand this movie campaign where they knew it was going to roll out you know everywhere but we didn't know that so you would have like this website and you'd go in and basically just like register your email and where you're from saying like please play this movie in my town soon and then they would slowly roll it out across like a number of towns before going wide and it's like really the birth of like Blumhouse cinema like it's really what puts Blumhouse on the map and it feels like so kind of fresh and exciting compared to saw which is now like it's sixth movie and as good as this entry is it's still kind of like the same old same old you know it's still like it doesn't break any new ground it just does what it does really really well but it's a year that like the friday the 13th remake comes out and people are excited for like a week and then it falls off the face of the earth uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 comes out and that is I love that movie and it's gotten some reappraisal since yeah but at, at the time it was like really hated by fans the last house and the left mm-hmm. remake hits um, but you're also getting like Sam Raimi's return to horror with like drag me to hell which does really well and that's like a spook a blast it's like super fun right and paranormal activity kind of like the same thing like it's a kind of like a fun spooky modern day haunted house movie ty west comes out with his uh sophomore feature the house of the devil coming off of his debut mm. the roost which is a really fun fans of ty west should go back and watch that movie the roost it's about killer bats where is that accessible? Uh, I saw it in theaters. It played the Brattle, not knowing who Ty West was. It was just like new horror movie from this guy you should look out for. Um, but House of the Devil comes out. I think that was my number one horror movie of the year back when I would like rank those things for in writing. And it just feels like the wheels have come off the wagon a bit with Saw. Like we've gotten six of them back to back to back to back. But not only that, you have all these other, like the Friday the 13th remake is pretty grisly. 
Halloween 2 is super, super nihilistic. Um, The Last Mm -hmm. House of the Left remake, The Collector comes out. The Human Centipede Mm -hmm. comes out. And I think audiences Mm -hmm. are like, all right, you know, like... We, we we have some yeah we again. need something new and different and it's kind of like paranormal activity does well for a few years insidious is only two years mm. away at this point speaking of james wan and lee one l and you know like everything in horror like right now i think everybody looks at like trauma horror like every movie is about like the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you uh it's all a metaphor and i think we're like okay we're we're okay with this being done for a bit, right? I mean, I think it's interesting, too, the way yeah. that it kind of shaped the trajectory, the, the shape of the franchise, because at this point, not a lot of film franchises were going five, six films, but, like, it's kind of crazy mm-hmm. that now that's pretty normal, and, like, I think, like, what was the joke that they originally said they wanted to make 11 Saw movies, and everybody's like, that's crazy, and, like, now it's like, yo, we can go the distance. We can go, like, 15 mm-hmm. with these if we, like, stick to anthologies after this or something, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, so it's it's fascinating seeing the uh, how quickly the, the state of franchises has changed in roughly, what, 14 years, uh, you know? So uh, really interesting that, you know, they kind of had to keep pivoting, being like, oh, well, we kind of want to do more, but, like, now... And I think that kind of shows in this movie because, like, this movie has so much more urgency than uh, yeah. 4 and 5 did. Like, 4 and 5 are slow walks through these, you know, challenges and whatnot. Like, this one has, like, that urgency back yeah. to it because, like, yeah. you can kind of feel that behind uh, the filmmaking. Do you – what do you think? Like, Ari, do you – actually, Lucy, because you would see these in theaters, like, right away, too. Yes. Do you think that this series would have benefited from – some space between the franchise like do we get to the point where like because they're coming out like one after another it almost feels like fatigue if there was maybe that two-year gap we would have been more excited honestly um it's hard for me to be objective about that because like i say um it was just such a magic part of my movie going and horror loving time where it was like every year one of these comes out and yeah sorry it's, yeah, I hear it's too you. hard what? to be objective you don't want to think that. about a world where there's no it's like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> Anya says there's a world without shrimp um, that that type of you, okay I don't want to go down that rabbit hole yeah well that's I mean that's what I have mm-hmm. on the background for this film and I think that's really good context about what else was coming out at the time and kind of where we were at in horror franchise history and the decade winding down so let's talk traps Mike what trap do you want so to start I with I want to make a general point about the traps first um, yeah. and I have a question later on that may end the show as we know it like it may end up with what? everybody logging Uh-oh. off um I know. How dare you? Um, Calm down, Thanos. Like, what's going on here? This is... This is... <laughs> okay, it may rip apart the... On this podcast into the world, this he will This one may hurt people. This one might hurt. It's a general point. This isn't one person trying to escape a trap in this movie. By and large, it has, like, two people that are opposing one another, and there can only be one survivor. And we see that at the outset with a pound of flesh and you know mm-hmm. i found this fascinating that like hoffman is still trying to continue jake saw's work and saying like well do you learn anything and 
you have her very you know, very emphatically telling him to go fuck yourself with that nonsense. And Devon, what did you <laughs> make of like Hoffman's like delivery in that moment? Like, well, did you learn anything? He's like, technically, he didn't murder you know your friend. Like, he did it to him. You know. it, it was so. It, it's so funny because it, like one, it feels meta almost. Like because it feels like you know like uh, audience members that have called out John's backwards philosophy. And in and, and showing um, uh, the importance of delivery because, you know, Tobin Bell can make it sound more compelling when you have Hoffman just talking to her in a hospital bed. Yeah, he's like, well, did you learn? She goes, no. Like, I did, what am I supposed to learn from this? Like, now I just don't have an arm for the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. so it, it is uh, kind of interesting watching uh, his approach and then like him. You know, like, again, he's coming off back-to-back wins. He's, like, he's riding high. Like, his ego is high on this shit. So, like, Mm -hmm. that's why he's really slipping up in this one because, like, he thinks he's hot shit. And so with the the general Mm -hmm. traps, like you said, there is still his flavor of the the 1v1 people having to make choices, uh, you know, the the moral conundrum. You still have that. But then you do still have Mm -hmm. John's uh, stuff because this is still a John design trap as well. At where it is, you know, uh, William having to make sacrifices to yeah. himself and like watch people and challenge uh, his policy and the formula. So uh, it's kind of yeah. an interesting mix of the two of their philosophies yeah. in this general game. I, I thought you would get a kick of like Hoffman. Oh, I laughed so hard. that and then being like swatted away. Like I said, the like nerve. Like, like I was tweeting, I was like, like the nerve Hoffman of just yeah. asking her like, to her face. Like, come on, guy. Like, Hakeem Olajuwon jumping into the paint and swatting that line away like, no, no, no. Steven, what do you think of this idea that like, we came off of Saw 5 where every it's like a co-op trap, like everybody worked together. Right. And now this is the opposite of that. Like, what were your thoughts on, like, the nature of these traps? I, I mean, the first one, I think it, it's more dynamic cinematically. Um, when you have these two people kind of going head to head, and we see that in the, um, I forget which entry it, is. it might be. No, it's not the next one. The mausoleum in five. That's what it is. Okay, yeah, we see that in the previous film, where these kind of two people kind of working against one another, and so this feels very similar to that, um, and I think it makes for for a more dynamic filmmaking. But I think we start to see the differences and i think devon's point is very apt the differences between hoffman and kramer i don't think hoffman really buys it and i think the evidence is right there in him even asking that question he doesn't he doesn't buy into it to these to the same extent that kramer does because and and i think it becomes clear in this one hoffman's the only one who's never actually suffered mm-hmm. he's he didn't have to go through well, his own trap Lost his he had the shotgun chair. It's different. Well, it is. It's not in the same way that. that well, yeah, he's not a survivor. Um, that like, Amanda. He, had. he was. He was a recruit. Exactly. Fair right. And so, I, and I think that affects. And I think that what this movie does very well is the relationship and the dynamic between Amanda and Hoffman with that being their distinguishing characteristic. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think, and I may get some pushback on this and that's fine, but I think this film offers a, a sort of a redemption arc for Amanda um, coming off of what happens in three in particular that I found as, as someone who prefers Amanda to Hoffman <laughs> that I really enjoyed personally. 
Ari, I'm curious. I found the traps here simpler in nature compared to what we had seen in mm -hmm. four and five. Like, not that they're lesser, but they're simpler in design. And we get this little flashback yeah. where Hoffman is kind of tinkering with the rack and John has to tell him you need to kind of, you know, he kind of like, kind of like dad steps in and is, is saying like, you're going to screw this up, like disappointed dad. Do you think that that, mm -hmm. the simpler nature was almost John's way of like, knowing Hoffman couldn't pull off some of the more complex things? Or what do you feel like is the nature of these various traps? That's a really good point that I hadn't considered. Um, I think that's a possibility. I think the, the simplicity of the traps in this one always hit me as a way to give the people in the trap a way to interact with William Easton, and then it becomes very personal. With the much more complicated traps, there's so much confusion that it removes you from the personal nature of them, or it can. Whereas in this one, you know, someone's going to hang by barbed wire, very simple, but that gives her the opportunity to plead. And so I, it could be a win-win where John was like, Hoffman do simpler traps but also that gives easton a more emotional I feel like test like a, i feel like it's like almost a choice by kevin too like to like kind of structure the film in a way to where it's like yeah they're like a little bit more simpler so by the time we do get to the shotgun carousel it hits like super hard because that one's big bombastic mm -hmm. it's loud the lights you yeah. know so it's like uh, all the other ones yeah were so simple and then mm -hmm. it's like once you step into that room it's like Oh, what the fuck is happening? I think that's the roller coaster part that he's <laughs> mentioning. Like that's where the roller coaster breaks down, and we're in panic yes. mode now. You know, let's talk the roller. Let's talk the shotgun carousel because I think this is an all timer, like one of the top three trap in the franchise. Not because of its complexity, but it's like so simple and genius, and so it memorable really too. Is. So here is the question that might end the show. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake. I don't, I, I'm hesitant. I'm so sorry. Hit me. Not in the face. All right. We'll start with you, Steven. Your okay. pod and pendulum co-hosts are all strapped to the carousel. You can only save two oh, of the dog pit. You've only met me today, Steven. So it's myself. Steven, let me make my case. Steven, you look at me when you're killing me. So, I'm Asian, Steve. Are we just going to go, Lucy, you're safe. We're going core co-host, right? We're going Devon, Nicole, Jess, Brian, Ari, myself. And Rachel. And Rachel. Rachel. So that's seven. That's okay. <laughs> Two bullets, Steven. Um, Wait, are we making the case? Like, because you, you would be the William. So are we the ones strapped and we're playing our case no, to we're you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the questions here, motherfucker. Well, no, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get logistics I'm, here. I'm, I'm trying setting, to get Mike to get put us here. all in a trap. Mr. Setting, I'm setting this game up. For the point of the... I will include myself in the okay. mix for each of okay. your answers. Like, Why did you pick Stephen, though? He hasn't been on any episodes yet. Because I was... I just I want was, to see yeah, I was, And I was used to answer this. That's what it is. <laughs> I I have this very expressive face, sweating, and he likes right it when now. I. It's like, oh god! Is it obvious that I'm stalling? Because yeah. I'm clearly stalling. Uh, <laughs> let me see. How many of these are one, two, three, four, five? I'm gonna go ahead and plead the fifth wow. amendment on this one. <laughs> I'm not American. What's the fifth amendment? It is 
uh, the right not, not to, to incriminate, incriminate oneself. But it really makes you just look guilty when you use it. It's one of those <laughs> right. things where, like, Correct. you don't have to. It just makes you look guilty. Oh, right. It's kind of, you know, it's the... Sorry, I had uh, to ask. Not, no, that's a great the, no, question. It is. And for listeners that are not American... Yeah, because I hear, <laughs> I always hear, I plead the fifth, but I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. know what that means. And this, and now we've got yeah. a baked in civics Excellent. lesson in our Saw 6 episode. So, well, Ari, I'm throwing this question to you. Oh, Mike, how could you? I'm so nice. <gasps> <laughs> uh, I would simply die. Excellent. So we yeah. all would die, basically. So all of us are dead. <laughs> And reunited. Yvonne, how about yourself? Look, I have long said that I will be the first guy to die in Same. any horror film. You put me in mm-hmm. any horror like situation, any horror film scenario, but you I'm the first die one die in out. this trap. You would just have like really hurdy hands. So so here's my so here's my thing because whenever I watch Thank this, you, Devon. Let's answer this. Okay. Well, so so I'll 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 make some progress here because I have very big hands, okay? So in mm-hmm. the in the thing, he only gets to save two people because he only has two hands mm-hmm. and like they get punctured. I think I can take two punctures in each hand. So I mm. think I can save four. So I think I can I save think it's four not people. Dis- I think it's disabled after two. Though I, I, I don't know. But, well, here's he the thing: try. he never tries. Exactly. So we I never think know. they tell him that though. I don't. I'm just trying to get crafty here. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get crafty. I'm putting my Hoffman cap on, trying to think outside the box here. Okay. You got oh, feet yeah, too, Devon. I thought of that too. Yeah, like he would have to like stand on the cage <laughs> to put his feet in it or something. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, that's amazing. You win this trap. Okay, okay you say it. So I, I thought because I thought of the question and I have an answer. Um, this is. And I I'm don't know very, if this will sure people if... to log off. Well, this is. And let me just say, Ari, that, like, we did this to him. To be to be fair, I suppose we did. We let the madness in for him. I love each of my co-hosts, and I would not want to see any of them die in a jigsaw trap or any negative way. But if I had to choose, I'm saving Ari because she does so much research, especially oh, for these God. episodes. <laughs> so it takes a lot off my plate right away. So Ari is safe right now oh homework saves the day again and so i'm not mad at that i i'm not mad either i i look ari is also like super nice i mean who would want anything thank you okay so now i I have to choose between nicole who i adore dearly and has been the champion of us forever no nicole always Uh, nicole jess who is like just tremendously knowledge about film super knowledgeable cosplay and is a grade a human being devon who brings like wit and spunk and charm and he brings the good looks to the show as well like he up that's true our q quotient by about i'm glad i bring the attractiveness Mm. up for our Mm. at least four i'm glad i bring the looks to the audio (laughs) podcast thank you for that (laughs) is also here funny and charming and does voices and who like always makes me laugh and is a super nice dude and then rachel and brian like rachel with all the music knowledge also Mm -hmm. incredibly nice lovely dog yes does is one of the hardest working people in podcasts um and then brian who again like he got his start podcasting by filling in for a time early on in the pod of the pendulum and is a tremendous writer and like watching him and this is again he also has the best voice Yes. Brian, oh, yeah. Brian's got his department, like, hands and down. And then 
is just a lovely like, oh yeah like you cannot say a bad word about him no and it's the classic movie knowledge that i don't yes have. same and it came down to two mm-hmm. it came down to rachel and brian for two reasons i feel like he's telling me mike i'm looking at you all right now <laughs> look at me this is i am say you're my pregnant heart is, my heart is pounding right now like my heart i am actually weirdly like like so, well it's funny it's funny you say that ari because it came down to like with rachel I feel like I would get like the best music recommendations for the rest of my life because like she is the music guru. I, she also works at a record shop now and again. Again, and I feel like if I saved her life, I not only would get the employee discount, like she would just send me shit. So that's a pretty cool perk. But Brian is the only other dad, and I'm like, could I deprive Brian's children? of like in Brian watching his children grow up and the final answer was yes I could do that I could because free music so Rachel would be the other person I would save does everybody so, hate Mike now? Mike's just, just gonna, end the show M- Mike's a, a predictably heartless no, I, I love Mike, how that you. was a, a, a demented way to compliment uh, the, the core panelists of, of the show yes. that was a, a yeah. true P&P fashion because I truly Red, love unhinged. each of you. Like, I, I, I just, cannot, like, to get verklempt for a moment. Like, you all have made the show 50 times better than it was. And it was already, like, I loved the show before. So I owe you all a ton. But I could only save two. And Ari does research. And Rachel would send me free records. And I like Rocky <laughs> Five. So, and I like Rocky you Five. So I, I, I see why Mike is offering me for this one. Yeah. So, all right. So, w- more about the carousel trap. Why is it so great? Well, now I've narrowly escaped death. Let me return to yeah, my Jesus, Ario. Ari now has a newfound appreciation for the carousel guess, trap. Guess I better so. not stop doing research ever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it's a good one. Hey, I think it's the longest <laughs> trap in the franchise. I was looking for yeah, it okay. is in terms of in terms of minutes like, on screen. Minutes on screen, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Yes, um, I think the because I times that the dynamics between the members of the dog pit on the carousel and William Easton as they're mm-hmm. trying to beg for their lives, as we all just did to Mike. Um, those interactions <laughs> are tiny and so loaded. You could yes. do a whole separate podcast episode on the shotgun carousel and the gender dynamics. And Lucy, you also added on the racial dynamics of the shotgun yeah. carousel. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot to yeah. unpack there. You could write essays just on that trap alone. Like, oh my god. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Just for like anybody who's who's like listening to like the podcast who doesn't know. Yeah. I'm Australian, obviously from my accent, but also I am Asian. So yeah. Like race. And the Saw franchise, like, I've always, like, yeah, just be cognizant of that. Sorry. Go on, Ariel. Yeah, that... No, no, I... Yeah, I, I think the dynamic, yeah, is just so fun. Like, yeah, hearing all these, like, little micro things, like, how they know each other. Like, my favorite one is uh is uh oh my, my parents are sick and he goes no they're not they hate you they actually cut you off <laughs> and then he's like i sit next to you i heard you like and I, like that's so hilarious i'm like yeah seeing the different ones 
And we also forget about John. Like, obviously, he's an exceptional engineer. We know this. This is uh, immaculate design. Uh, But his theatricality, I've always appreciated. He needs to put flashing lights in in traps i like that's so funny to me like and there's a and there's a build-up to it like william is like walking up and he's like you know trying to find the next place where he's supposed to be and you hear sounds and conversations coming from the other side of the door and like when he opens the door it's like it hits you with this wall of sound of just all the clanking the screaming the lights the fog there's there's hissing it's funny and it's made to be funny it's like a fun house (laughs) Like, so on an aesthetic level, I think it might be like the most gorgeous looking trap aside from, um, the, the, the shot of, uh, the ice cubes hanging above, uh, Donnie Wahlberg with Hoffman in the chair. I think those two and maybe the mausoleum, I think are like the three best looking traps. Just pour one out for actor Sean Mathewson, who plays Josh, who is cutting a grade A wrestling promo. Yes, he is. It is amazing. No one has cooked that hard in a trap. Like, no one. Like, that guy is cooking. His rent was due on that day. Like, and I appreciate it. (laughs) And I love that he gets to give that rant after he knows he can't be saved. Yep. Because it just allows him to go off. Yep. Your policy is bullshit. To me, like it would have been amazing if, if he could have saved everyone. Two other things yeah. I, I want to note about this trap. Um, the actors yeah. were given anti-nausea medication because they had to do so many takes of going around mm. and around. And oh my god, I'm this. an extremely motion sick person. Like I can make myself motion sick mm. by like turning around too quickly. <laughs> so like I really feel that. And then the other thing I wanted to note. <laughs> is that uh, the actress who played Shelby, who was the blonde in the blue shirt, um, mm-hmm. hair and clish, she was pregnant during this scene, too. And so I always like to point out the people who have oh my secret pregnancies as they're filming Saw movies. It's kind of a thing. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, yeah. God, I love okay. Saw lore. Did you notice that when this one came out, I, I, I was very online when all through the Saw, all through the saw films, but... Did you notice there was like kind of a sexist oh. attitude towards the night? I wasn't super online at the time. Um, however, I I feel like yes, that still yeah. continues today. If you step out of my carefully curated saw circle where people speak reasonably to one another and step slightly onto the real <laughs> internet where people are dicks. There is quite a bit of sexism about um, how the women act in the shotgun carousel. This trap, how the women plead their case and how the men plead their case uh, is sometimes looked at very differently by certain fans. Mm -hmm. What sort of things do you hear? Because I have not stepped into that bubble. Um... God, it's really disappointing. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, It's... Women getting... uh, Particularly gendered words like shrill and bitch... Mm, are thrown mm-hmm. out and you know she sounds like a bitch she you, you sounds shrill whore, like stuff like that like yes. we never really hear yes. that kind of language in the mm-hmm. other saw entries exactly yeah. and um that it's uh, you know a lot of people mad that uh, one of the women says she's pregnant may or may not be true on the shotgun carousel seems yeah. like a lie um and so some people are really unhappy with like oh, so unfair that women just get to claim that. And it's like, well, that's not really... Shut up. Like, I didn't Mm -hmm. invent that you can't get pregnant and save yourself that way. Like, try something else. 
yeah, there's there's a lot. If you go looking for it, you can find people who think that the men in the shotgun carousel deserve to live because the women were shrill bitches. It's okay. very typical. It's not it's very typical. Inter- it's typical neckbeard internet. Okay. Yes. Got yes. it. Misogyny. What do we feel about this last trap? The one that Williams ends up in, in like that twist at the end where it's like, this isn't my family. Like, this is actually the Ron DeSantis kind of body double that you see from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah. And I completely fell I completely fell for it. Yeah, I did not I did not recognize that yeah, Williams like family was he was like the journalist. Yeah. yeah I mean <laughs> I, I was gonna say this, like this was like the first time I was genuinely confused at like what was happening mm-hmm. like in a trap. Like I mean not not like I mean like the twist really? was interesting. I was like, oh it's not his family but like I like couldn't wrap my head around yeah, like we yeah. have this lever it's not doing anything we got the tank and then like the whole like sequence I was like I don't know like like uh, it, I mean I think it's interesting like I think the end result is really cool um but like the the this I feel like was like a very convoluted setup uh, for like the final mm-hmm. piece <laughs> and it triggers Hoffman's trap as well mm-hmm. correct like when one of them hits die it triggers Hoffman's bear trap right no I thought it did. No, those are unrelated. They are. Okay. I'm pretty sure now I'm oh, feeling like Oh yeah, no, like... that that no, the the that does uh, that that doesn't. Uh, uh, Hoffman okay. Hoffman triggers his own game by fucking with Jill. Like that's that's the only Got reason it. that his game okay. is, uh, is kicked off is because he came it, after Jill. I I just have this recollection of like the trap his trap being activated once the die switch is pulled down but it's just editing no, okay no. got it the magic of editing yeah. okay yeah i was gonna say it, it's probably just let's build all the tension at the okay. same time mm-hmm. and pay yes. off both of these mm-hmm. two yes. storylines at once mm-hmm. you know that that fun all the narratives come to a head moment that seinfeld perfected in the 90s i i feel like it 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 plays out like how it probably would with like the mom unable to pull that lever and not being able to live with it, like just pulling it in front of her son in particular, like what message would that send to him? And then right. the son being like, you killed my dad, motherfucker. And then like, th- could not push that letter down any harder. <laughs> if he tried, like he f- pulls that thing, like angry young white boy and justify. I mean, like, I mean, it, it, it my, I'll just energy super. My dad died from an operation like it was an accident he got an infection after um and he was in a coma for a bit and then passed not to get modeling here like at 19 years old like if i could have pulled the switch on the doctor that made that mistake i probably would wouldn't do it now would have done it at 19 like nothing to do with being an angry white guy so much it's just like you know i don't have a dad anymore and i wonder if that's a variable that john accounted for you know like it's kind of it's interesting to see because uh I, I was gonna use this moment and like the the shotgun carousel to like uh to shout out um uh peter outerbridge's performance uh in in these mm-hmm. last two uh traps Love like it. you know like he really gets to like put on an emotional you know performance after you know playing the the slick uh, businessman mm-hmm. uh, earlier in the film you know it's a it's a really great performance and so it's like almost kind of uh, it's crazy you know with the way that plays out because like it like do you feel like he learned like when he's pleading to to them and he's like <laughs> I, like you know but like 
but is it like it's too little too late you know like is, when the damage is done on something you know for someone the damage is done you know so it's it's very interesting that's like I mean, I think like by, just by the performance, I'm like, I feel like he he learned something today, you know. But it it doesn't matter, you know, because mm-hmm. you also just uh, can't uh, account for the the human condition, you know, the human heart. And so, like, yeah. uh, I I wonder if because John's always trying to anticipate people, you know, when he sets stuff up. So I wonder how much he accounted for the the uh, you know the emotions of a 19 year old kid. Well, I think the fact that he's there at all is a testament to the fact that he yeah. was counting on something. Time creates a good deal of perspective. I mean, Mike, you you just said you would have done it at nineteen. You probably wouldn't have done it now. There, there, time come perspective comes with time, and he's that is all. It, it's fresh for both of them, but I think with his youth, there comes an element of rashness. And I mean, who's not just pissed in general as a teenager at shit? You know, um, I was a little angry white boy once upon a time. You know, and it just just because we the world is unjust, shit happens. Yeah. And this guy's had a little extra shit dealt his way. And so then you have the other question. If her son wasn't there, would the mom have felt more comfortable pulling the lever in that moment? Um, and I I agree with you, Devon Outerbridge is great. One of the great skeevy that guys of all time. Like if you need someone to play a sleaze ball, you call Peter and he's like, yeah, I'll take it yeah I, I can do that uh i was the whole movie i'm like where do i know him from and it, it's the german guy from cool runnings that's where i know him from say something jamaica and i think he plays it really well and i think that's the question i think that's the question we as the audience are forced to reckon with is has he learned his lesson and based on how he's responded to the traps i think we're still not sure mm-hmm. and so i think that's a question that we are the, the filmmakers are wanting us to wrestle with as an audience. Yes. Like, does he deserve it? Is this justified? And I think that's what makes this trap so compelling. And I, it's, it's one of the best traps in the franchise for me, yeah. just because of that moral reckoning that it forces us to do that. I don't know that any other traps have really put us through to that degree. It's the, it's one of those great ethical dilemmas like the would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family, but on a much right. more grandiose and cinematic scale. I, I agree with that. Like you're getting a real you're getting a, a a real villain in this movie. And I think a real more than that, you're getting the personification of a very evil industry. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna table that briefly. <clears throat> But Ari, what do you think of the journey that like mm-hmm. Williams makes from the start of this movie where he's very like dispassionately, almost like comedically brushing off like the persons? It's not comedic. But in his mind it is. Like he's like kind of making a joke yeah, it, of it. Yeah, in his mind it is. Um, yeah. yeah. What sorry. do you and Lucy make of like, this journey that he makes from the that outset to now? Okay, yeah, I just have to, full disclosure, obviously, as I'm an Australian, my experience of the healthcare system is not the same as an American's. And I will, like, be very honest, and as somebody who recently, like, had to, like, you know, diagnosed as ADHD and be like, you know, receive, like, you know, a medication for ADHD, 
I was very shocked when I realised how much the cost disparity is between what I have to pay for my medication versus what Americans have to pay. We're all nodding oh, very, yeah. very, very <laughs> depressed right. looks Honestly, on our faces. Just the yeah. Yeah. Your medication got approved. It's not a guarantee. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Just the fact as an adult being diagnosed with ADHD and being told, like, okay, yeah, you, you need to receive some medication. Yeah, I can. I don't know where I heard this, but I'm stealing it. Like, someone once said, like, Breaking Bad would never happen in any country. It could never be made in a country outside of America because the, the pilot episode of Breaking Bad would be, like, Brian Cranston is diagnosed with brain cancer and then he gets treatment and or lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Then he gets treatment and is healed, possibly. That's the show. Yeah. It would end in one episode. But, Ari, what do you make of the journey that Williams goes through mm-hmm. Do you feel like he has a deeper understanding of what he has put people through with his formula? Yeah. Um, and just full disclosure, it maybe sounds a little silly, but I do get emotional when I talk about Sussex. And so I'm trying to keep myself pulled mm. together. So I'm going. Yeah. Well, it is the emotional. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I get emotional about this one, too. When I'm, I'm not like, you know, American, so I do not have to experience like, you know, the but you have empathy. The journey that William goes on. You know, it is hard because I think that the way the American medical insurance system is set up is is not good, right? Like that's pretty that's a pretty basic thing to say. And I don't think that most of the people who go to work at their insurance jobs are mustache twirling villains. Like I think they're probably just regular people going to regular jobs. And I um, so I think it's William as he's going through these traps and he's mm. faced with his formula to decide who lives or dies. He's like really come face to face with something that he, I'm sorry, if somebody else could just take, take over for a minute. Yeah. No, like, I, I mean, I think, no, take a minute. Give her, give her a minute. It, there's, <laughs> I'm sorry guys. I didn't no, expect no, no. this. It's Okay. It's okay. Oh, How silly fine. is it, it to be crying? It over is a song not movie? silly. It is <laughs> movies build. Empathy, you can leave this even. As like... <laughs> we're saying, it's silly. It's not silly because, like, if, if you're not, if you're not, you know, and I think maybe like a lot of us, like, who would have watched Saw Six when we were younger, would maybe we're younger, we're healthier, we feel like we're going to live forever. I'm at an age now where like parts of my body don't work like they used to anymore. And like, I've had to take medications for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember recently getting a call like, oh, they want to re-up this medicine, but we want to see you first. And I'm like, you're the one that put me on this. Like you told me I need this. Just fucking put me on it and i've been trying to get into like a weight management clinic for for a year now um i was 15 minutes late to my appointment my fault i put down the wrong time so it is my fault 15 minutes late to my intake appointment to possibly get a medication that could be like life-changing for me that i've been trying to get for six months so they're like yes you have a condition but not enough of a condition where you could we're going to put you on this. So you need to go see this person. And as I'm 15 minutes late and they're like, well, we have to like book you again, like six weeks from now. And I'm like, if I was like 
here on time, you would make me wait these 15 minutes. But because I'm 15 mm. minutes late, like, and there's nobody else yeah. in the clinic right now, you can't give me this. All I want is this medicine that, like, I've done the research on. My wife has done a ton of research on it. It's mm. safe. There are no side effects. Um, it would probably save my life is true strong a word, but it would um, give me a higher quality of life. It sucks that like two years ago, I fell down some stairs, got a knee surgery, and my legs don't work as well as they used to. Like my knees still hurt every day. I can't run anymore. I can't play basketball mm. with kids at school anymore yeah. like I used to because I'm getting older and shit doesn't work. And you have this this industry that... Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely hits like a lot different as an adult and it and it's not silly that this is you know make us emotional for a saw movie because it's kind of wild that no other movie has really kind of tackled this specific thing that affects so many people in 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 a in a in a in a way you know because like my dad had to take early retirement because of a work accident and then i had to watch him struggle to get his benefits and his insurance coverage for five years you know in a and it's and it mm. and you know seeing that and like in and specifically like the dog pit in this movie you know they mm. are supposed to go out to go find these discrepancies like my dad literally had people spying on him to like see like oh is he uh, moving too ably right now and that to use that in the court cases you know like that is like yeah. so it's like even though like william does come off a bit cartoonishly evil like that like we like these are yeah. real things that are happening and like so this is a such no, a very hyper specific yeah. you know topic for this film hey listeners this is ari here i'm just recording a little solo track so um, if you listen to the Sausix episode, you know I didn't quite get through my description about my feelings on William Easton's trial as he's going through the traps in the zoo and being confronted with his coworkers. Um, was a little bit surprised by my emotional reaction, but hey, you know, that's, that's a Saw franchise. It's full of surprises. So I just wanted to get a couple thoughts out here now that I've had some time to just take a breath and sort of get my thoughts in order. Um, you know, like I think I was, I don't even quite remember what I was in the middle of saying before, but I think I was in the middle of saying that even though the American medical insurance system is, you know, like evil from a business perspective, I certainly don't think everybody who works for those companies is a mustache twirling villain. I think a lot of people are just trying to go to work, do a normal jobs, jobs that they need to have insurance for too. So... Um, you know, you got to be able to separate <laughs> reality from fiction when you're working through the Saw movies, of course. But I did just want to say that I don't I know everybody involved in the insurance system. It doesn't feel like Easton does at the beginning of the movie when he's kind of treating his cases very lightly. And as he goes through and he's confronted with the traps um, with his coworkers and them, you know, we were talking about, does he learn his lesson? And I don't know if he does or doesn't, but I think he at least starts to come close to it. His policy, and from a business standpoint, makes sense, which is why maybe health insurance shouldn't be a business, maybe? I'm not sure. Um, it makes sense because he's trying to save the company money, right? So he decides, like, 
who are we not going to have to use our insurance on? Who's not going to make a claim so we don't have to cover them? Essentially, if you need health care, you deserve to die. If you don't need health care, you get to live. That's what his policy turns out to be in real life. So when he's confronted with that, especially between um, the gallows trap, where it's, you know, this woman's older and has health problems, but she also has a family. This guy's younger, no health problems, and doesn't have a family. William Easton has to pick one of them to die. His, his formula hurts him to think about, and I think that is the important part of William Easton's trial. Would he probably still go back to work the next day if he survived and do what has to make money? I mean, yeah, probably, because he probably has people to answer to as well, but maybe he would be a little bit more sensitive in delivering the news. Um, like when he has to tell someone like your, your request for coverage has been denied, maybe he wouldn't laugh about it with legal while he's drinking in the afternoon. I don't know. And we'll never know because his guts are over the, all over the floor of that abandoned zoo. Um, and I think that this movie can hit really hard for anybody who has had coverage denied by their medical insurance or, or had a hard time, um, you know, going through that process. And so... I think while this movie at the end, like I said previously, makes me stand up and cheer because I'm like, yeah, that motherfucker got his. It also is like very emotionally impact uh, impactful as evidenced by my crying during the episode. So I just wanted to put that out there so I could finish my thoughts. And thank you all for listening to The Pod and the Pendulum. We really appreciate your support. I hope that you all have a lovely day and game over and don't get caught in a trap. That's why I was always like, yeah, just because I'm in the very privileged experience of, like, you know, being an Australian where we have, like, you know, not the... I think it's fascinating. And you have another comment here in the notes that we were going to touch on later. So I think I'll bring it up now. And that John makes a comment at one point where he's like, well, you know, in the Far East, you pay doctors when you're healthy. Can you talk about that? Because you had a very visceral reaction to that in the notes what was yeah i had a very visceral reaction to that okay but i just want to like go on the records just as an asian person who loves this franchise and yeah whatever yeah whatever but just the fact that just because in this specific one that this is the one that john has like you know his oh like um do you feel like it is it's it do you feel like it's kind of fetishizing like Asian culture? Yeah, it's fetishizing Asian culture. His statement has only taught, has only been relevant to specifically um, traditional Chinese medicine and only very specific divisions of Chinese medicine. So what you're saying is when John is saying, well, in the Far East, you're saying like, well, no, it's maybe one portion of our culture, but our culture is not a monolith. Like we make up like, you know, I think we we forget that like India is part of Asia, that there are parts of the Middle East that are parts of Asia. Uh, And when he talks about that um, specific culture, it's more the um, traditional Chinese Mm -hmm. medicine 
as opposed to like all of the other Asian right. kinds of healthcare. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry for the rest of no, you who are like okay. politely like listening to this. So, I really value your perspective on this. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear it. Because Absolutely. I'll say that like I took that statement on its face and I'm like, oh, that actually sounds quite lovely. Like that is like this idea of like this is what you pay for. And although like and I think that this is like a really good example of like internal biases that pop up in racism and like microaggressions that pop up in racism where even when there are good intentions, um, those good intentions can come off as extremely hurtful. And it can like I would imagine that in some ways when you hear that statement, you feel invisible. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it's insulting. So basically, yeah, okay, like I will keep this very basic, but yeah, it's just that the fact that John's statement in this film, it's insulting and it's inaccurate, and yeah. Okay. Thank well, you. I appreciate that. That was hey, uh, no, absolutely. Check John Kramer. Like that is uh, <laughs> also what we have yeah. kind of playing these episodes. I mean, because uh, yes. he does kind of have a he does kind of have a holier than thou uh, mm-hmm. uh, a way of speaking at times. Mm-hmm. Even though I will still say, like, aside from the inaccuracy of that part, like it, it is. Um, I loved watching William squirm as John is. Uh, philosophizing mm-hmm. and everything and like especially uh the the I, I like what he says afterwards after uh after piranha uh which piranha. which like tobin bell i love you like for whatever reason he did that and and he and like a spe- but then he goes back into it and then afterwards like that's when he really uh is like kind of uh you know criticizing uh his formula and like these choices and and it's so funny because again john is multiple times told Hoffman not to make things personal don't make things personal and yes John is making it personal but then under the guise yes. that right. oh no I'm doing this for everyone else that you're doing this to not me I'm doing this for everyone else actually which Be is convenient, convenient honestly wouldn't you say in no spoilers for Saw 10 <laughs> essentially all of these movies <laughs> all of John's victims are deeply personal aren't they yes. like it's oh yeah, yeah. I believe it, it, that yeah, yeah. That's what makes him a compelling yeah. villain is because he, he can't even follow his right. own criteria. Yes. That, that is <laughs> it, yes. It's, it's like he's not like traveling too far to find these victims. Like they are, they even say in this movie, the broadcaster says like anyone who is even like remotely con- connected with John Kramer seems to be turning up and that you cut back to William's face where he has a like, I just stepped in it. Look, he's like, oh no. Mm-hmm. Um, as we kind of check John Kramer here, Ariel, can we talk a bit about how this series continues to maybe mishandle addiction and mental illness and how it stigmatizes them and kind of like makes them into villains? Yes, we can. Um, so I think one example of that in this film is, um, Hank, who is the janitor who also smokes. And according to William's uh, policy, you know, Hank, as a smoker, would be deemed not as worthy of coverage as somebody who does not smoke. And, um, you know, William has to kill Hank by breathing better than him, which is, you know, a real, that's just really sticking it and needling it there. And, like, 
you know, cigarettes are very, very addictive. And even if you want to quit, it's very hard to do so sometimes. And um, there's lots of studies about, like, who smokes and why and how, like, someone in a position of privilege like William Easton is maybe less likely to smoke than someone else. So mm -hmm. it's easy for him to look down on. So I think that's one of the ways that this shows up in this film. Right. Um, we could talk about how cigarettes are marketed to children, how yeah. they were marketed to communities of color yep. uh, as well. Yep, absolutely true. Um, is there another good example of that in this film that I'm not remembering? Well, uh, well uh, the, the other example I was thinking of well, was the Gallows one. Um, whenever, again, like he's, uh, you know, saying like, hey, one person, this guy's healthy, but he has no family. And then this other lady who has family, but like she has these complications, all it runs in her family and she's older and all these things. And so like, that's like, yeah, the other one where he's like, okay, let me take your formula and, you know, do it for you in front of your face. Um, and, uh, I like the gallows one too, cause, uh, I didn't know that this took place in an abandoned zoo. And I think that's so cool mm -hmm. because, like, this is, like, kind of one of the first ones where we have, um, you know, the game, like, set up like a display. And I, I really uh, like uh, the, the look of that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so, like, mm -hmm. this is – that's, like, the other, like, other specific example I can think of because, yeah, like, the way – he does it with Hank is, is just like, uh, okay, come on. Like, you know, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, each one of these is literally playing out his formula, like in real time. And I think that's always interesting because, uh, you know, it's like you, when you talk to these people, they talk about you like you're a number, you know? And like, so it's, uh, and I like, right. you know, you know, John coming from an engineer background, he's, you know, still working class. And like, so he's like, a am not a numbers guy, but I can show you what you're saying so like that's what he does with like each one uh yeah. to like literally just like demonstrate out the, the the formula like in real time a real thing in in that way it's it's poetic and kind of brilliant by putting an actual face on and, and not just any face it's these are faces that he knows these are faces that he recognizes. it personalizes all of this for him and shows him the actual real world impact for actual real life people it's easy for him to look at mr abbott in the face and say well sorry because i don't know he doesn't know mr abbott from adam but when he's confronted with the people that he works with every day with his own family um well well now it's this this time it's personal um and and it really is um and, and i think that's it, it's very poetic. Again, it's it's awful. It's horrible. But it shows him the real life impact of what his policies are doing to mm -hmm. actual real life people. Yeah. I also Do think you... of John confronting Jill in that flashback and really in a really unsupportive way, basically telling her her life's work is shit. That, like, she's not helping right. these people with addiction. Yes. Um, I think that that interaction is really important because throughout the whole franchise, you sort of see the story of Jill and John. And they both, you know, you know, I think uh, Jigsaw's philosophy is bullshit and he doesn't believe his own shit, right? But, like, Jill and John both posit that they want to help other people and, like, John helps raise money for Jill's clinic, and, like, he seems supportive enough. But then when the rubber meets the road, he tells her, like, this isn't going to work, you're doing it wrong, where probably the work that she's doing in her methadone clinic is helping people way more mm -hmm. than, you know, whatever John says he's doing, where he's just killing people. And that... Or maiming them, yes. at least. 
And so the treatment of addiction and mental illness in that is is a very, um, you know, we talked about seeing shades of it earlier in the franchise, and it's still the case in this movie where John thinks that he, he, he doesn't see addiction as a disease, he sees it as a moral failing. And, um, you know, that's, that's not accurate. And Jill's trying to treat a disease and John's trying to treat a moral failing. And he literally yells in her face. And I'm like, girl, you don't need to take that. And Jill is the epitome of stand by your man in this Mm -hmm. movie. That it's so funny because again, like it's all about ego. Like John, it's about ego with John, uh, him thinking that he's better than William, but then he has his ego battle with Hoffman as well. Um, and that that confrontation with Jill is where John really feels the most cult-like, where he, like, brings Amanda in and, like, shows it. He goes, look, see, uh, I, I, I have proof. I have results. And Amanda's like, yeah, see, I am fixed now. And it's like, uh, John, <laughs> like, do you really see what you're doing right now? And, like, do you hear yourself? And, like, that's where it's, like, the, the delusions have, like, kind of really set in mm-hmm. versus Jill is, like, you know, really takes things for the way they are she's like no like you know like i'm i look at the context of you know these people's situations versus you don't like you uh uh you know you see everything black and white but like you know like the world is gray unfortunately you know so it's like i they're they're different ideologies is uh fantastic talking about that that stand by your man aspect of it and the contrast between Jill and John and like you just said right there you know uh, Devon with like Jill kind of seeing like John like what you're saying here doesn't really ring doesn't ring in any way true um what do we how do we feel about Jill kind of getting sucked into John's game like I was genuinely surprised that she is a willing participant in these games like she has been reduced from her former role of like his wife and partner to really like a mere acolyte like kind of really beneath the level of even Hoffman who appears to be the more favored Jill's my favorite of Jigsaw's (laughs) followers by a lot Mm -hmm. um I I think that there's something really important here about final wishes I think um in our culture and in probably a lot of cultures there is something very compelling about carrying out a person's final wish that makes people do all types of things they don't want to do. So we we yeah. put a lot of pressure on ourselves to fulfill final requests of, of our late loved ones. And I think that's part of it here. I also think that Jill does not like Hoffman. And she's like, well, if what you want me to do is kill this guy who I think helped you go off the rails, who I don't like, like I'm willing to do that. Um, I'm also a person. Well, no. Yeah. Like Jill, Jill, like, yeah, like I said in the last one, like she, she doesn't want to be a part of this. She's like, John, this is all your thing. Like that is your thing. I have my things and that's okay. We keep them separate. But now yet, like uh, Ariel said, like, you know, there is this kind of like interesting, like uh, it's compelling, but like I, sometimes it's like, it's almost like a pressure that you have uh, of carrying out people's final wishes, uh, you know, making arrangements and things like that. And it's like, you know, and that has put a lot of financial stress on people and things like that. But then with Jill, she, I like that. I, I like that she picks and chooses like she she does have agency like she there are, there's the time there's the times where she's like no I'm not playing along with John's game and that's mainly in five 
but then in this one it's like yeah she's like fine i'll do this so that way i we can i can be done you know like okay if i take out hoffman then this should end right and then like i should be done so it's like i don't see her being manipulated by john i feel like this is her consciously saying like okay i want to end this and like you know hoffman's mm-hmm. doing too much yes and if he's still going i'm never gonna be not connected to this yeah because she doesn't want to be a part of this she doesn't want anything to do with this at all so the only thing that gets her involved is the promise of the end um no i think that was that was i don't think i could have put it any better devon like that was that was very well said and i think that speaks very well of her end game i think part of why I dislike Hoffman to the extent that I do in this film is because I've always been an Amanda guy Um, and their dynamic. I mean, he basically sets her up to die. uh, We see in this movie, which I think redeems her a little bit in retrospect, which is something I admire about the Saw franchise is their ability to, if they didn't get something quite right, they'll just go back and retcon it a couple movies later and just be like, oh, you know, I mm, that didn't work for some people. So we'll we'll say Hoffman did it because people hate him anyway. And we'll just we'll just pin all this that on him. This is where the retconning starts to bother me mm. because I I, I mm. get what sums are saying about like, well, it recontextualizes why Amanda does what she does and kind of redeems her in a way. And I feel two ways of it. Number one, it removes a lot of her agency. It is like it puts it her does. in like a really unwinnable position here. And I, I like, but that's the position she was putting other people true, in as well. But I, but I feel like she makes her choice to kill Lynn in part three, and it's not a good choice. But at it's least her she's choice. going out on her own. Yeah, right, right. I also feel yeah. like, I feel like John knows that Amanda's with Cecil. Already. I don't think so. I do because John knows everything. Um, I do. Like, think of all the yeah. shit that I mean, John he did have to, already he was stalking knows. Cecil. He, he was stalking Cecil, so like, I mean, yeah, maybe he did know, but again, like, this is where it's just all these different uh, egos stepping on top of each other. You know, like, I don't think it fully redeems Amanda, and like, I think it does. I think it makes her more tragic in a way, but I think she was already a tragic figure. And then, you know, and then it becomes now it's, uh, again, this ego thing because uh, he knows that Hoffman's going to take it too far. Like, Hoffman's like, oh, yeah, like, I'll take your teachings, but, like, now this is me. And, like, and he's, like, and he's really getting into it, and that's why uh, John has to pretty much just be like, uh, hey, no, you're, you're doing too good at my thing, so I'm going to knock you down as well. Um, it, so, yeah, to, to put that whole to put the whole twist in that uh, uh, Hoffman like blackmailed Amanda um, is uh, it, it's weird. But at the same time, like, it, like I love Hoffman because I hate Hoffman or like, like he is mm-hmm. just like he, 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 he does too much, you know? Mm-hmm. And like he, he, and, and Hey, who hasn't gotten lost in the sauce? You know, again, when you're, when you're riding the high of, you know, again, he's, he's uh, really killing it at his uh, new jigsaw role. So he, he goes too far and, uh, but it does, have one of my favorite scenes ever his uh his escape whenever um the fbi agents save oh save, save that, that one for just okay. a couple minutes just for a couple okay. minutes but i do have you for that ari can i just say real quick ari nothing but respect for you you are the master of research john kramer's research alive. pictures to shame <laughs> john kramer's research pictures to shame i don't think there's any way that he doesn't know 
that yeah. Cecil and Amanda can were Can I explain why I think what I yes, think? Yes, you can. Okay. Sure. So um, I think that Jill, when so I'm going to talk about Jill and John and why I think they both don't know. Jill gets that note that was a copy of the note that Hoffman gave to Amanda, and Jill doesn't show any type of reaction to it other than she knows it's something that will get Hoffman to know someone's on his trail. I don't think Jill knows what that note means, or we would see her react to it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think she knows. And I truly do not think that John would have kept Amanda on as a disciple, knowing what he knows, because, like if he knew that. Because the miscarriage of his baby Gideon is one of the big kickoff points for why he does what he does. The other is his cancer diagnosis, of course. But um, I, I think he would have cut Amanda loose had he known. Hmm. I think it's surprising that, you know, if he doesn't know, I think that's surprising. But also because I think he just sort of washed his hands of Cecil after Cecil went through his trap mm -hmm. and said, job done. Um, so that's why I think what I think certainly could be wrong. I have no proof. Given like John's affection for Amanda, do you think that it's possible that he doesn't want to know? Like I'm not, he doesn't even want to mm -hmm. go down that road. Like he chooses to not. I suppose that's possible. It's interesting because whenever something, whenever somebody, when John perceives that he has been wronged, he does something about it. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's hard for me to think that he would just ignore that, but I suppose it's a possibility. Devon, what do you think of like the squabbling between these two? Like the kind of like trying to become the parents' favorite child. Heels. I, I, love I, it. I just wish we got more of these scenes because it's, it's mm -hmm. honestly one of my favorite interactions in the entire series. Uh, like we got mentioned earlier, like, you know, uh, again, and, and it demonstrates the dynamics here because uh, I know you guys keep saying that Hoffman's a kid. No, no, he is, he is Jigsaw's caddy gay competition. Okay, like, because mm -hmm. because in this little scene, like, he's tinkering and he thinks he knows how to make it better. And John's like, no, 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 you got to do this. And then Amanda does, like, kind of the more child thing of being like, yeah, and you actually got to need this. And, like, tosses him the, the oil gun, you know, and, like, and is, like, and basically is like, haha, dad, you know, like, dad got you, like, and you know. Um, so it's a, it's a very fun scene, I wish. Um, we did get more of that, but it's uh, again like it's like Hoffman's just like ah, I can't stand you, Amanda. And then they, uh, I, I love their uh, the the little back and forth whenever. Um, uh, again, this is where Hoffman's showing his ego when he's like Amanda's like, well, where when's your test gonna be? And he's like, I don't need a test. I'm not getting tested. Like I don't need it. Like I'm I'm the real one. Like you're the one that needs the test because you know you're the screw up or whatever. And like that's kind of their their two uh, their their banter between each other. So just wish we got more of their uh, more of them together in scenes. Honestly, it's a highlight. It's one of the better parts of the movie. Like them currying currying for favor. And like Stephen, I think you've said you're Team Amanda, right? No, I I am I am absolutely Team Amanda. I I, I really enjoy her arc probably more than maybe anyone's but John Kramer's over the course of this franchise. Um, and the, I mean, the twist, the reveal at the end of two um, is really, is really powerful for that. Um, the, the switch from who we perceive to be the final girl into 
someone who will become one of the primary villains. And then just the surprise death at the end of three, where you think she's going to be the one carrying the mantle forward. And then that you get kind of the, the, the subversion of those expectations and then being able to revisit her in six mm-hmm. and, um, and maybe other entries as well. Um, just being able to kind of reconnect with her and, and to see what, where she's at on her journey, what she is and isn't learning about this, grand ethos that John Kramer has put together and how what I find interesting is how differently all of the acolytes seem to respond to the ethos like they all with the exception of Hoffman go through something similar and come out the other side presumably changed but the way that they grapple with and reckon with that overarching philosophy is the thing that I find really interesting and something I wish for all that it does, I wish these movies would explore a little more and dig into a little better. Like, I, I agree with Devon. I want to see more of their interactions with each other because I want to see the ways in which the difference of philosophy mm-hmm. comes to bear on on the plot. And really, the only evidence that we see that there's any difference in these philosophies at all is in the traps themselves and how they as the killers respond yeah. to and them. It's like, I, I think, you know, it's been fun having, you know, this debate, like, you know, who is the true, you know, successor heir apparent. And I think this film does an interesting uh, uh, thing of showing that I think John sets them both up for failure. Like he's, you know, mm. he is using them to continue on his legacy to a degree, but he's also setting them up to fail to where again, at the end of the day, he's going to be like, you guys were never me. I'm still the grand master. So he like puts in these stop gaps for them to run into and to, to, uh, you know, and, and he does the thing where he's like, well, you make your own choice. If you're going to mess up the game, then you mess it up. You're making your choice. But it's like, he's setting them up for failure. So it's like, he wants, he wants the legacy, but he doesn't want them to truly have it though. Which I think is, is kind of to, to go back to a point we were making earlier. It's always been personal. His legacy isn't about continuing the work of making people reckon with and appreciate life. It's always been about solving his own grudges Mm -hmm. that he's had throughout his life and making sure that even when he's gone, the people that need to pay are still able to pay. And I, and I, and that, that becomes, and so once, once all of that work is done, well, now we can remove Mm -hmm. him from our plate. Now we can take him off the table because that that part's over with and oh well we couldn't do it in this movie well i guess we'll have to try to figure out a way to do it in the next one then won't we ari what do you think i thought that was beautifully put i don't think i have anything to add to that fair enough um what i do want to ask though is like now we're going to get to the keystone cops aspect of it (laughs) in hoffman's finest moment in any of these the moment where hoffman earns a bit of my respect and ari you you had talked about bring Perez back and I think that leads into the soap opera nature of these movies and that soap opera nature that that is something that I think like Marcus Dunstan and uh brings with his writing and I'm I'm blanking on the other writer Patrick Melton Melton and Dunstan bring how did you react to Perez's return in this movie and then Jesus dispatched with like I thought that she was dead so I was really surprised to see her come back but like the um the soft franchise doesn't let people stay dead right so it was exciting to see her back and the showdown with hoffman and perez and erickson and the poor sound tech is really tense i think that whole scene is really well done i do get a little bit sick of the phrase right now you're feeling helpless (laughs) but um 
you know, it does play in my head over and over again after I watch this movie. But um, I love seeing Perez back is is a damn shame Mm -hmm. that she gets got. The sound tech getting got, it's like a shade. It's like the last broadcast where I don't know if anyone has seen that movie where it's like the video tech that brings finds the footage and then gets offed again like i love this franchise's commitment to the bit that like law enforcement are incredibly stupid you have erickson and perez they have like they're like they know it's hoffman they have all the evidence they need and they're and they know he's extremely dangerous like he's a fucking dangerous dude and they're like hey why don't you tag along with us and we're going to try to like, rather than just like arrest him and bring him in and having backup, they're like, let's see if we can string you along. Like, like they could, they could totally have him holding in custody while they're waiting for this voice analysis. Like that's such a funny B plot for this, that we have Mm -hmm. the, the spy V spy part two. We're waiting on this voice analysis recognition to keep coming back. And, it's all funny because one this illustrates how bad hoffman is at like acting uh like he's just every time like something comes up he's super every time something comes up he's like yeah it was peter strom right and they're just like maybe and but there's like also a funny side eye thing that they keep doing they're like "Eh, we just Mm -hmm. gotta check a few things and it's just like you guys are all being so ridiculous and uh culminating in that scene is uh, that's why I call him the Hoffmanator. Is this scene right here yeah. where we see him uh, activate his uh, cop man powers and just like I'm a I'm a sucker for a I'm a sucker for a one person escape, uh, you know. So yeah, the coffee to the face using a human shield, stabs to the neck, and 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 I'll say like as we were kind of talking about like the 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 pathos and all this with John, like this this could have been the end, and I the only reason that I kind of now want to come back on for the next one is we get more of this and we get more rampage and hoffmanator so you know this is fun it's really his best moment it really is him his really his time to shine here uh and again like perez is like giving the game away like oh do you have somewhere to be you keep checking your watcher you're looking a little nervous there hoffman (laughs) like these are the worst fucking she goes they're FBI. They're not even cops. They're FBI. They have special. They have Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs training. They're they're the Mulder and they're not even Mulder and Scully. They're like the season nine replacements with the a four Mulder and Scully. They're so dumb. They're just like, why are you so dumb? Hoffman's reaction to why you keep checking the timing goes, uh, I was timing something before I got here, and that's he just that's, oh, that's I just leaves it at that. He can't even say it's my Fitbit, you know, like can't even because it's before that. I was laughing at something different (laughs) that I heard earlier and just now remember. Same energy, same energy. But I feel like this is really one of Hoffman's two best moments in in the franchise. And this next best moment is how he gets out of that fucking reverse. And you think you're finally going to see someone like bite it in a reverse bear trap after six movies and it's gonna be hoffman yeah. and that's gonna be so great uh i, I mean yeah like it's uh, uh again i'm a sucker for hoffman being in traps uh it, that's kind of a recurring gag that he is always ending up in these traps and uh it's a it's a fun tease like because we're, we're still waiting we're like somebody's gonna get it you know from the the trap and uh again you you can't you can't deny the man and he and he comes up with a little way and he takes the injury we get ripped face hoffman which is great 
great slasher look. So uh, yeah, the, the, it's I, I like how we're like almost, but nope, he, he, he mm-hmm. he's he can't deny him. And the way he gets out is, I have to I have to give it to him, pretty ingenious. No, I mean he just he just shoves the trap in between a couple bars and it's like keeps it from opening, like which is really Jill's mistake for putting him in a room with bars. Really, it's uh, pretty lucky I too mean, that it fits she, perfectly to mm-hmm. open just enough for him Isn't to it? escape. Mm-hmm. It does rip his face apart in a really gnarly, it really does. gnarly way to end. In a very Heath Ledger want to know how I got mm-hmm. these scars kind of way. Um, I. Uh, I was like, okay, this is it. We're finally going to get it. Like, there's no way he's getting out of this one. And then he does. And I I remember having this moment of, like, he keeps slipping away from Mm -hmm. everything they put him through. He just keeps getting away. And there's so many moments throughout the franchise of, well, how are they going to get out of this one? That it sort of comes back around on itself here to, like, it is ridiculous and then hilarious. And then you're just back into it again. Like, I was like, okay, I guess... I'm fully on board for whatever happens next. But, um, yeah, I, I got to hand it to Hoffman. It's super clever. Yeah, He's 1980s Ric Flair and that you would pay to go see Ric Flair get beaten from biller to post from like for an hour. And you're like, finally, Flair is going to lose. And then he would slip out at the end. And you'd be like, God That's damn exactly it. That's exactly right. His thing is in the 80s, you would you would want to see him lose and he never would lose. And then you'd be like, God damn it. And then next week you'd pay your money again to see Ric Flair almost lose and then slip out at the end. It's a good comparison, Mike. I have to give Hoffman props for like the way he like gets out of that. Not just like, not just getting his, his face between the bars, but just like having the forethought to bash his hand to smithereens Mm -hmm. to get out of being strapped down. Like I have to, as much as I don't love Hoffman, Gotta gotta give that respect. warms my heart, Mike. That warms you have my to. Heart. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and again, as much as I hate Hoffman, this is this is this is the respect I will give him. Yeah. He does escape the trap. No, I just yeah, there it is. He he manages to escape the trap in, and again, I admit, a fairly ingenious way. So so there you go. Again, Ferrari, very lucky for him. But yeah, I think we've hit it. I think we've covered this movie from pillar to post in a way that I didn't expect. It went down some avenues that were unexpected. But you know, I think I think we can put Saw Six to bed. Uh, Ari, do you have any final thoughts on? So um, this has my favorite kill of the franchise. I know I didn't get through talking about William Easton, and that is fine. But the hydrofluoric acid kill to William Easton is my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's super gnarly. My most favorite of the whole franchise. So, um, yeah, I think this is a great one. Infinitely rewatchable. I'm glad we got to talk through it. Leave Me it at that. Me too. Glad we got to. All right. Taking a moment. I'm just looking ahead at editing this episode, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Um God bless your yeah. journey, Mike. Before we head out of here, let's talk about where listeners can find us uh, and what we have coming up. So, Lucy, where can our listeners find you on the socials? Okay, so I am Australian and I am a sex worker. So you can find me on Twitter on Lucy552, where you can find my bad opinions on horror and video games or sick. Or sex worker activism, mm-hmm. but that's 
I want your opinions on... You have a PS5, right? Yes. Okay, so I want your opinions on Spider-Man 2 when it comes out, because that's going to be the game that makes me I haven't played spend it. money. Well, it's not out yet, but when it comes out, I want I your opinions on Spider-Man 2. Okay, I will now edit you out of the show. <laughs> yeah. um, Steven, where, what's going on with Disenfranchised and where can listeners find you? Uh, well, I don't hate Spider-Man, just you know, for the record. Um, no, uh, Disenfranchised, I'm one of the hosts of the Disenfranchised podcast. And um, we are getting ready to start our annual, our fourth annual Spookython this month, where we talk exclusively about horror failed franchise starters. Uh, and this month we're doing a Romero remake month. And so we're going to be uh, kicking that off on uh, this Thursday, I think, as I said, this episode drops on the Tom Savini's 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. And so you can probably extrapolate from there where we're going the rest of the month. But uh, it's going to be some good conversations over there. Uh, you can follow Disenfranchised on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Facebook at DisenfranchPod. Uh, and then me personally, you can find me at Chewy Walrus on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. I do also want to plug, I was uh, made an appearance in a film recently called Circle City Supernatural. A uh, good friend of mine, J.P. Leck, is a author, filmmaker, podcaster. He does a little bit of everything. He's been on our show several times, and uh, he made his first feature film. And as an amateur actor, I was like, hey, I need to be in this. And he's like, hey, you do. And so it's an it's a horror anthology film. It takes place in a radio station, um, and uh, I'm one of the callers, and it I play uh, Reverend Aiden Wright. I play a, a priest who uh, who has to uh, face a demon living in a dead serial killer. Um, so I'm just one of the many parts of the film. And um, if you like just micro, I think the entire film had a budget of like six thousand um, dollars. And I'm not I'm not joking. Like it's a tiny, it's a micro. But if you like micro budget filmmaking and practical special effects. Um, then if, if that sounds like a good time, absolutely check that out. I had a blast making it. I had a blast watching it. And hey, if that sounds like your thing, maybe you will too. Devon, how about yourself? What do you have cooking up? And I got to, before I, Steve, you're doing the crazies? Excellent. Uh, we are, yeah. You want to guest on that one? Let's talk. Let's definitely talk. Right. Uh, Devon, what is coming up? Yeah. Devon, what's coming up with the Spectre Cinema? Well, if uh, you, you haven't had enough games over here, uh, we're heading into uh, Death Games territory um, over on uh, Spectre Cinema Club. So like, uh, we got like uh, stuff like Would You Rather, Ready or Not coming up. And, uh, and we are uh, going to be uh, reviewing Saw 10. So I will not be on the Saw 10 episode for here, but if you want to uh, get some uh, uh, quicker thoughts over there, you can. And then, you know, compare notes with everybody. That's what I'm going to do whenever I listen to the episodes. Uh, but, yeah, so new episodes every Tuesday with me and my buddy Garrett McDowell. And uh, you can uh, find us on social media at Spectre Cinema. And you can find me on all socials at underscore Daddy Disco. Ari, I know it's October. It's got to be a big month for the ghouls. What's going on at Ghouls Magazine right now? Yes. Um, well, if anybody's in the London area, there's lots of live events coming up, including um, screenings at a pizza place called True Romance. I know probably not a lot of our listeners are in London, but I did want to plug that. And throughout the month of October, we'll be doing um, mental health and horror theme, including some panels. So watch uh, Ghouls Magazine socials for that. And you can find me on all the socials at Ari underscore Hellraiser. 
Excellent. Listeners, you know where to find me. I'm at Blueski, at Mike Snoonian, at Instagram, at Mike underscore Snoonian, at Letterbox, at Mike Chump Change. You can follow the show at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter for now. Should have a Blueski handle up shortly for that as well. Um, please, if you like what we're doing, rate, review, and subscribe to us everywhere you get your podcasts. Really appreciate the spat of like great reviews we've gotten recently. Means a lot to us. Um, truly, truly appreciate that. It lets us know we're doing the right thing. Love some of the feedback we've gotten as we're going through the Saw series in particular. That means a lot. If you really enjoy the show and want to uh, support us, you can become a patron today by going to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum where we post a lot of bonus content up there on the feed as well. With October coming up, we'll try to get that thing loaded for the month with some different ideas and some different things. What we have coming up on the show is the back half of our, matter of fact, if you become a patron, you can hear Ari, Steven, and I just do a very brief mini episode of our initial minor spoiler, uh, minor spoiler filled thoughts on Saw 10. If you don't want to wait a month to get our initial thoughts. Um, what we have coming up on the show is we are now entering the back half of our Saw coverage, and we'll wrap that up with our rankings episode. Uh, it is October, so we're going to cook up some uh, bonus content we can give y'all for this month. Uh, September of this year was our most successful month ever in terms of listenership, which I really appreciate. Uh, I think we're going to surpass that pretty easily in October. Ari and I will be out at Telluride Horror. I think we're going to talk about our experiences there together. Really excited to meet up with Ariel for that. And Yeah, it's uh, going to be a blast. Little meetup. So we'll be back in a week with Saw, the not-so-final chapter, taking a cue from Friday the 13th. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll be back very, very soon. Take care, y'all. Game over.